Welcome to Forecast, the foreshadow podcast, seeking glimpses of heaven on earth through conversations about people's lives and work. This season, our theme is Called Forth, Vocation and Faith, asking who we are called to become and what we are called to do. I'm Josh, and today I'm joined by Jeff Compton Nelson, the Assistant Director of Field Education and Vocational Formation at Duke University Divinity School in North Carolina. And Jeff is also an old friend from college, so it's good to have a chance to chat and reflect with him in this format. So Jeff, thank you for your time and welcome to Forecast. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to ask you an icebreaker question to allow our listeners to get to know you um, in a in a less formal way than the questions I will be asking later on. So what's something you enjoy doing in your free time if you have free time these days? Oh, yeah. If, if I have free time, it's always a great question. Um, so we so graduated from Duke Divinity School in 2013, and then for the next seven and a half years, lived on Duke's campus. So I've worked in housing and residence life. So lived, lived with undergraduates in the good times and hard times. And then during the pandemic, we, um, wife and I bought a house in Durham, moved off campus and finally have our own space. So it feels like we've uh, tried to leap into all the things that we couldn't do for the past mm. eight years. So we bought, <laughs> right now we have 14 chickens in the oh, backyard. Wow and a flower garden starting and we ended up on uh we have like a it's a very big space yard and so a lot of nice. landscaping so most most of my free time that's not parenting or working is like yard work which okay. straight i hated mowing the mowing the lawn which was my chore growing up but um it feels different now or at least there's still a novelty to it that hasn't worn away mm. So I say I say that, and um, I love I love writing. So that would be the other um, my indoor. If I have free time and the opportunity to to write, that that's what I gravitate towards. So I try to I try to balance them. Too much of one of them is probably not good for me. So trying to trying to keep good a good complement. Um, but yeah, yeah. I sometimes think that like gardening and writing are go go hand in hand together and um i don't know exactly maybe weeding relating to editing and yeah, you know, yeah. cutting out lots of things or gr- sometimes a story or i don't know what you're writing but if it's a story or an, an essay maybe the idea grows in you over time the way that plants grow and you- yeah i i like that um i the things i um so i care deeply about space and place like the intersections of, of place and justice and inclusion. And so I feel like with tending our little plot of land that, that has been, um, we're currently the, the caretakers of, and then in, in the things I enjoy writing as well, it's, it's sort of deep attention to, um, to the often invisible ways that places and, and spaces like shape us and shape the ways that we engage with one another. Um, and so those, I certainly see that that point of connection, that common thread through both. Um, but certainly the, yeah, there there comes a time in the every winter as things are, you know, not dying but dormant. They have to like, uh, we've got these really tall grasses in the front of our house that get to be 15, 20 feet tall, and so that you know 
you have to you have to take a hedge hedge trimmer to them to cut them back down so they grow again, mm-hmm. and that's certainly I think a mm. um, apt apt bit of the writing process as well. No matter how beautiful it is, always being ready to scrap something that you at one point mm. thought you could never get okay. rid of because um, the story or the the thing you know the story you're telling has has shifted over time. But. Okay, I hope you can get back to to the writing because uh, that's part of a question I have prepared later is re- uh, relates to writing. Um, but first, I want to focus on your your role as um, so did I get the, that right? The assistant director of field education and vocational formation. Um, if you can maybe give our listeners kind of a, a glimpse of what you do, um, I, I noticed on your LinkedIn page that. Um, you say that you support students as they creatively and expansively explore, understand, narrate, and inhabit their vocations. So maybe you could start by describing the students that you're working with, like maybe the demographics and um, and anything else that you'd like to share about your students. Yeah, so I began in this role at the at Duke Divinity School this past so September of 2021. And it was a, a new position, sort of reimagined after after one of the staff members' retirements. For uh, you know, what does this? Uh, what do our students need? What are the questions they're asking? And how do we, through this new position and role, um, kind of re- respond to that? So we've got at the at Duke Divinity School. I should probably I should probably know the most accurate uh, enrollment data. You know, we'll, we'll say in the neighborhood of four hundred students across degree programs, so various master's levels, programs, uh, two doctoral programs. A lot of students, I work most closely with the master's level students, so the Master of Divinity, Master of Theological Studies, and a a MA program. So the Duke Divinity for a long time has been among the younger seminaries in in the United States. And so um, a lot of students traditionally have come uh, fresh out of college, or maybe just the one or two years out of their undergraduate studies into the Divinity School, a lot of them having a, a sort of clear or relatively clear sense that they want to maybe move toward ordination or work in a church, and so they find their way to seminary. We've always had a large number of students, however, who have perhaps discerned a call to seminary or felt like um, this context for asking it's like big theological questions, questions around vocation, they are drawn to Duke Divinity without a clear sense of of what is mm-hmm. next or where that's headed. Mm-hmm. And so, for um, for those students, the Divinity School, at Duke Divinity, has also for a really long time, and part of its sort of core mission identity is around. Forming, um, forming pastors, forming faithful Christians for service to the church. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that uh, sort of pastoral training ground is just what it means to be part of Duke Divinity School, which is not when I left uh, when I left San Diego for Duke Divinity. I didn't quite believe it. Like I, I went to Duke Divinity in part because it was like the best seminary in the country. Like, oh, I okay. can study with some of my, you know, study with Stanley Harawas and Ellen Davis and Richard Hayes and all these big names that I read um, in college. And then when I got here, it's like, oh no, they're, they're serious. Like they're actually like trying to train ministers. Like a lot of my classmates went to Duke because 
they're Methodists from the Southeast and their pastor went to Duke and they didn't know all these, these sort of big names. And he, you know, these, uh, it's just it felt like in some ways, two different schools. Um, but that context is really like rich because it really allows people to think deeply about Christian tradition, about uh, Christian practices, what it means to be faithful in the context of, of the work of the church. So coming back to that, um, you know, part of my role at the Divine School is to support a lot of the other offices that have, have a stake in this work of training ministers, training ordained people. So houses of study, many of those are denominationally affiliated or uh, sort of circle around cultural identity. Some are, uh, so we've got different certificate programs for students with particular interests in like prison studies or Christian education or preaching. And then we've got, um, yeah, so, so it's a lot of like, up, you know, supporting the work that, that they're doing. Field education is also a, a sort of big place where students engage questions around vocation. Um, and I'll, I'll maybe say, say more about that soon. The, the I know there's a lot, though, there's probably a lot oh, yeah. to say. There is. <laughs> yeah, there is, there is. Um, not, not to lose thread of the original question. So the, the other, uh, I'll say, piece, the recent shift that has affected this question of work. So traditionally, Duke Divinity students tend to be younger. Um, in some ways, Divinity School is, is a place where they're working out some of these questions of what comes next. During the pandemic, the Divinity School launched a new hybrid Master of Divinity degree. So students, we have three hybrid programs. So they'll spend three one-week intensives over each academic year on campus in Durham. And then the rest of their time, they're remote somewhere around the United States. Hmm. They tend to be a, about a decade older than our residential student population. And many of them are already serving full-time in churches or nonprofits. And so coming to Divinity School, somebody serves a different function. It's in a different place in their sort of life arc, vocational arc. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's maybe a credential that they don't have that they want to have, or maybe it serves as you know, they've been thinking about going back to study, um, but haven't really had the chance to. And so my role in field education is taking the lead, I'm sort of the lead, uh, like programmatic lead for these new hybrid master divinity students who need okay. these contextual learning hours as part of their curricular requirements, but are also already serving uh, in different places. And not to say we have a lot of ma uh, hybrid master divinity students who are not in traditional ministry settings. Um, we've got doctors and judges and educators and social workers and um, people who may not, you know, certainly will, you know, would not pick up their lives to move to Durham for three years of full-time study, mm -hmm. but for whom um, this gives a sort of entry point to theological education. Mm -hmm. My vocational formation work is uh, inclusive of all students, so students across degree programs, helping them yeah, make sense of their time in Divinity School and sort of asking those questions of what does it look like to actualize this and to launch into whatever is next. And so some of that's been um, trying new programs and building, deepening, building new relationships with like Duke University's Career Center and mm -hmm. alumni who are um, thinking through what this mentorship look like and 
inspiring students' mm. imaginations for what's possible for them. Um, a lot of a lot of students, I mean myself included, who did not see sort of local church ministry as their path, uh, have been left for a long time to ask sort of questions or just make make their own path along the way. And so, mm-hmm. what are ways that the Divinity School can come alongside and kind of support them in discovering and imagining what what vocationally they may be headed to? Um, that was a long. That was perhaps a longer answer than you asked for, but um, no, that's, that's really. Divine school and kind of my my role within it. Thank you. That really kind of paints the landscape well. I think, um, at, at least, I know there's probably a lot more you haven't said, but really for this conversation, it really paints it well. Um, so how it sounds like one of the things you have quite a range of students you work with. Some who are asking these questions about their vocation, and some who are the, maybe more learning from a distance who who already have a clearer sense of their vocation, um, but are looking for um, equipping and and um, strengthening that. But for the students that are um, still trying to discern their vocations, how do you um, inspire their imagination for what they can do? And what does that look like? Yeah, you know, in some ways we're all, we're working this out as, as we go. Um, so students thinking about the, so the Master of Theological Studies program, students are here for two years. Um, so I'll say it's, it's in some ways program specific and student specific. So when students are entering Divinity School, they were probably asking different questions than when they're leaving Divinity School. For students in our two-year program, the Master of Theological Studies, many of them are in that program because they are um, they're not thinking about church work or ordination, and most of them, a lot of them, are thinking about doctoral studies as maybe you know teaching, teaching at a university level or in a seminary, being the context where they sort of live live into their vocational identities. For some of them, they'll continue on to doctoral programs. For many of those students, though, there's some reckoning along the way of perhaps this is not for me. Or, um, you know, I thought I'd pursue a PhD after divinity school. And it was both needing a break and realizing that there were like no jobs available in, you know, full-time tenure track mm-hmm. positions. And so um, for them, there's some, for many of them, there's some moment in the middle of the program where they're having to realize my, the vision I had for myself going into this program, it's different from where I am now. And so what does it look like to, to talk about a degree in theological studies, but, you know, translate it for a different sector or industry, or like, what can I do with my, with my MTS? Yeah. For MDiv students, um, vocational discernment happens in some ways all the time and in a lot of different contexts. So just the admissions process to divinity school, there are big questions being asked of like, why is why divinity school or why do divinity school? Um, you know, for, for some, they come into it because they've known someone who's come to Duke divinity school or they had a pastor along the way who said, you know, you should really think about seminary. You should go to seminary. And some who maybe were really involved in campus ministries in college and discerned to call the ministry and they, so seminary is the next thing on the list. One common place where vocational discernment also gets worked out 
is like in field education. So all Master Divinity students have to complete a certain number of field education hours where they're in ministry settings, in nonprofits. It may be through chaplaincy internships at a hospital, um, but they have to sort of engage in the practical work of ministry. You know, what does it look like to take these big theological questions about God or creation and uh, like root, root them in the ground in particular communities and congregations? Mm-hmm. That and uh, field education and often in the context of the relationships with a supervisor mentor and doing the work itself provides a lot of a lot of opportunities for reflection about okay. like, yeah. am, I, am I called to this? Do I feel energized being uh, working in a local church? Do I find it like draining, uh, soul sucking? And so it's that sort of experiencing it, I think has a really invaluable role. Yes. It, it also happens academic advising. So students along the way get asked about um, questions around vocation or what's next. And so a lot of, yeah, there are a lot of different places where it happens um, in the life cycle of a student. Okay. I've lost the original question you asked, Josh. No, you answered so feel, it. Feel you free to. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, and it, you, you're, you're at a divinity school, so I assume most of your students are Christian, but th- there may be some, at, uh, at, the, at the seminary where I went, there were some, it was, it was a Christian seminary, but there were some students that were not um, Christians. Um, a small minority. So I was wondering if um, how, how Christian spirituality fits with vocation in, in your work. Um, do you ever work with students who have a different faith than Christianity or even no faith? Um, That's a, yeah. Um, so the vast majority of students are Christian. I don't want to say all. Um, because that's just the vast majority, uh, yeah. at least, you know, they, they are Christian or they, I'll say pass as Christian, you know, they, they may be wrestling with, um, wrestling with some of those questions or identifiers internally, but are not necessarily like public. Um, most of the students are Protestant. So we, we have a handful of Catholic students and a, usually a few Orthodox students. Ah. It's often sometimes the case that students will um, like convert to Eastern Orthodoxy or Catholicism while they're part of while they're at Divinity School. Yeah, I so said we have a lot of students who um, a lot of students from mainline traditions, so Methodist or Baptist, Episcopal, you know, um, members of the Episcopal Church. And a lot of students, though, who grew up evangelical and don't identify with evangelicalism broadly, but also don't quite have a really firm sense of denomination, denominationally where where they live. Um, and then a handful of students who who are you know, come from more charismatic or evangelical backgrounds. It's I mean it's honestly a pretty good mix, um, a, a wonderful diversity. It's it's a Methodist seminary, so there's always a core group of United Methodists and a lot of the staff are Methodist and a lot of the liturgies Methodist, but certainly the past decade, uh, the past 12 years as they've been attached or affiliated with Duke Divinity in some way, there's sort of a, a recognition of, there's a, a beauty in the diversity of sort of Christian forms 
And are there ways that we both in corporate worship or through the curriculum can be more uh, like welcoming, hospitable to these to these different forms? So we've had, um, yeah. So I'll maybe leave it at that. But we have a good mix. The vast majority are Christian, um, though. There's also a lot of exploration of what what that designation means means right. to them. All right. Okay. And and it sounds like um, you have a Christian. Uh, so because of that, you have a Christian way of understanding vocation. Um, it's I mean it's different than simply uh, um, if you went to if if you were doing the same role at a at a at a public school um, and they were doing vocational training there would there wouldn't be there a spiritual element to it whereas here it sounds like there is very much a discernment of what god is doing and saying in one's life so i'd like to maybe now ask more about vocation broadly and um and how you understand vocation in in this um sense of of a calling from god um so first of all what has vocation meant to you on a personal level um, have you ever sensed a calling to do something or be a certain kind of person? And I know you've said a little bit already about that as you were discerning why you went to Duke Divinity School. And you've also said some about your desire to um, to create like just spaces. And um, and so if you want to share anything about that, feel free. Um, so, but but what is that? What does that vocational explore, exploration look like in your life? Yeah. Um... It's an important question, and if I'm looking, I'm looking at, at the calendar. Um, say, if you were to talk to Angela, my wife, she might say, "I've I've been in some sort of extended vocational crisis for several <laughs> years." Um, so I, I don't think while, you're alone in that. No, no, certainly. And so there, there is this sort of uh, ironic fittingness to my being in this role, in some part, it makes, it makes sense of having someone in this role who's had their own prolonged vocational crisis of like, what, like, what do I do? What's, where am I supposed to be? Um, a lot of like, I'll say more, more downs and ups even along the way, a lot of closed doors along the way. Um, so it makes a lot of sense. And also um, I sort of laugh at myself that, oh, this is, who would have thought that the vocational crisis um, that I'm currently in, which prompted, like, let me try to attend these like workshops on how to get jobs or these um, different like training sessions on on coaching and discerning like vision and strategy for for your life, like what what you're about at your core. Who would have thought that the crisis that brought around these uh, my desire to to participate in these trainings and workshops was itself the training of like guiding students through it as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so a, a large part of what I know about uh, like resumes, like res like building a resume, transferring skills, all of that has come about sort of forged in crisis. Let's see. So um, can you ask me again the original question? I was going to start. That was like the recent, my, my own sort of laughing at myself. Um, well, if you if you want my to continue. own understanding of vocation, right? Yeah, yes. my my own. Yeah. So when I I thought in college, so both of my parents are pastors, um, which is why I didn't want to be a pastor, and I ended up at Point Loma Nazarene University in San Diego, 
thought I would do clinical psychology. Um, do, I, I got into a PhD in clinical psychology at Fuller Theological Seminary, decided to defer for a year as Angela and I were figuring out whether we were wanting to get married or not. I applied that next year to more psychology programs and more seminaries, only got into the seminaries and uh, with some scholarship money. And so it's like, well, some sort of theological education is in my future. At that point, um, you know, being a part of, of the church I was in, in San Diego, Southeast Church of the Nazarene, it was really yeah. important for me to see the, the possibilities for what Christian ministry could look like outside of the form of it that I inhabited growing up. Um, but it wasn't until coming to Duke Divinity School where also sort of began discerning like what's next, but like am I called to ordination? Um, so I am ordained in the Church of Nazarene, though I haven't necessarily sort of discerned or felt um, any vocational draw toward being a local church minister. Um, and so that, that you know, I've been ordained since 2016, but also most of that time, my time was spent either um, in a sort of volunteer pastoral capacity at House Church House Part of in Durham, or as primarily working within student affairs at Duke. And so a lot of that season was uh, me trying to translate my understanding of vocation, my theological education for, uh, for people in an organization that's unfamiliar with the language and logic of the church. Um, and so you know, there, uh, I love St. Augustine and um, a very Augustinian way of thinking is saying that like we're opaque to ourselves. Um, so we have a tendency toward like self-deception. And so like it's me trying to translate some Augustinian statement into the, the vernacular of of the world in some ways to put it that way, or at least not not of not of the church. Um, and so being in Can you, house, can you say what, in, in what way? Um, just yeah, so I so understand just, the quote. Yeah. Um, so there there is, you know, uh, a it's still around, right? This strong impulse, strong desire, uh, a strong, the, the goal for, for many people, and it's a, a authenticity is where I'm getting at. Like, so being authentic is one of the highest goods that you can have for yourself and figuring out like what, you know, what does it mean to be authentically you? And that's language that student affairs used a lot. I mean, still does loves, um, and we want people to be true to who they are, but we also have to reckon with like, what if authentically you're a terrible person or like the goal, the goal, you know, there's no sense of sin or like a, a sort of under a brokenness underneath, um, the way of being in the world. And so it seems that we don't, we want people to be true to who they are. And, and I, I hope uh, okay. this comes up in conversation later. We want people to be true to who they are. We also want people to be loving and good. And sometimes those things are at odds. Um, okay. Okay. So, so the, mm. in some ways being in student affairs, so when I left Divinity School, I was wanting to be in a position that put me in contact with a much wider diversity of people. So that was one of the things that came out of, I was really interested in questions around race and gender and um, like interreligious engagement at a seminary but wanting to be, I'd pretty much been in predominantly 
predominantly Christian, predominantly white spaces. And so one in, one in a different context. Um, in some ways I see student affairs as, you know, so um, if you're starting out with a, with a friend on a, on a path or like it's, you know, you'll, you, even if you're heading in slightly different directions, you'll still be really close for the beginning. But even if one person's sort of angled out one or two degrees mm. over the course of 10 miles, you're going to be a lot farther, mm. farther apart. And that's what student affairs have felt like for me is that when I was at the beginning of it, it felt like, the, oh, this is a really a great spot to be sort of meets. And I think it answers some of the vocational questions I have. Then seven years in realizing um, in some ways the distance that I, that I have traveled. Um, and so my, I've realized over the course of that time too, when I grew up, I had a very, like my sense of vocation was I have my life plan worked out. Mm-hmm. Like this is what I'll be doing when I'm each decade of my life. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, I'm, I'm really bad at predicting the future. And so <laughs> like not, none of that has worked out, but it's always been a gift. But so I've, I've begun to see this kind of vocational journey as you work towards some goal, some current vision of what this, of what, um, what it looks like to, to um, inhabit your vocation as Christians. And then at some point, like the, the path will turn or there'll be a new path that comes along the path that you're on that brings you a new way. And so it's okay. more turtle and also just with openness that odds mm-hmm. are it's gonna be something else um, and that's okay. Ah, that's a helpful, um, th- thank you for sharing that about your journey. And I think that's helpful for me and I hope for our listeners as well, thinking about um, vocation in this sense as um, maybe not, well, first of all, not something we can plan um, and also maybe something that that might change in, in different seasons of our lives um, in some capacities. And and we'll talk about this soon, how on forecast, we've been talking about different dimensions to vocation. Um, um, and before we do that, um, um, I also want to uh, say that we've been talking now, I think, about vocation in terms of a career, um, what we do as our, as our, what we do for a living. Um, and at, at, on Forecast and on the Foreshadow magazine, we've also been exploring vocation beyond that too, um, such as um, for, for you, in addition to your work, you're a husband, you're a father. Um, you've mentioned some volunteer work that you've done in churches. Um, and and so um, so how how do you understand the relationship between vocation and career? Yeah, that's um, it's a really important topic to raise, question to ask. Like uh, it's also something I'll say behind the scenes at the Divinity School, we're still trying to figure out like how how to narrate that. Because it is certainly the case that many people uh, inhabit their vocations in terms of a job that pays them money. It is also the case that many people discern, work out, live into, inhabit their vocations in roles that do not pay them money. Sometimes, um, sometimes it's right. So, it, so it, it can be the same, not even the same thing. They can be related, like your job can also be part of your vocation, mm-hmm. but they need not be. I think holding too closely 
to the identification of jobs and vocations um, can really limit how people live into their vocations. So thinking about, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure anyone is called, I, I may be, you know, feel free to push back. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure anyone is called to be a teacher. I think that people for who they are, like who they are as creatures and created beings and you know, based on how they've been shaped growing up and what they're interested in and their context and capacity for, like they may be, they may be called and gifted for, for the work of teaching. Mm -hmm. And so for many of them, they can also be teachers and that's a way that they can, can do the verb teach. But for many people based on, um, you know, even like access to higher education or the credentials to to become a teacher, or maybe they uh, have other life circumstances that it, they can't inhabit some occupation called teacher. They can certainly still teach. Yes, like you can teach yes. in corporate session in corporate settings. You can teach in your neighborhood. You can teach in all sorts of ways. Yeah. And so, um, thinking about about vocation and what it means to be kind of true to who you are as God, you know, as a, a creature of God, um, beloved by God, you know, that's, that's something that can, I think, expand and exist well beyond or outside of, of a job. Because um, also the case too, that some people, they need a job that is not, does not feel the most fulfilling because that is what pays them money. And part of their other vocation is as, you know, it's maybe a spouse or parent or their other life needs. I mean, to be child, to be caring for, for um, parents who are ill or otherwise, you know, dependent. Um, you know, so it is also the case that someone can be, uh, I'll say, a, a faithful Christian who the job that they pay does not kind of meet meet some sort of vocational need, but that is in that process that allows them the space and opportunity to to also be faithful to their vocations as you know, members of the family or or the body of Christ. Otherwise, yes. Yes, and okay, that that leads us well into the this outline that I mentioned earlier, and I and so I'd like to share that and hear your thoughts on that um, of the three dimensions of callings that we've kind of identified. Uh, please uh, feel free to um, share your thoughts on this, um, and this relates to what you're saying earlier. Is the first dimension is a universal calling, something that we are all called to do, such as um, all as we understand as Christians, we're all called to follow Christ and to become like Christ. Um, we're all called to love God and our neighbor. Um, it's something that is just universal. But then the second dimension is um, uh, the unique ways that each of us um, follow those callings, um, such as through our, uh, we were mentioning through our circumstances, like if we are caring for someone in need, um, whether a child or an elderly parent, that that's one that's a, a unique way we are following that calling. Or maybe through our strengths and our personalities, um, God created us each with unique gifts and abilities, and so using those in service to God is is another way that we follow this calling. And then a third way, and I think this is a bit more gray in terms of it's less defined, is. Um, common ways that people often follow their callings. And so you mentioned teaching as, as one kind of deeper vocation. 
and someone who has that vocation to teach may not actually uh, ha be a teacher, like a, a high school or secondary school teacher or a professor, but they, are they can still teach through whatever roles they might be in, or even as a parent, they might be teaching their child about God or about life. Um, another common way that people follow their callings might be ordained ministry, which you mentioned as well. Um, uh, in the in the Orthodox and Catholic churches, marriage and celibacy are two callings that go that are kind of um, two ways that people can uh, follow this calling to serve Christ, either through marriage or celibacy. Um, so. And and I and I liked what you were saying about teaching as being an under one one underlying um, calling that people might have even if they don't have that as a career. I think another one might be um, healing, like a, a healer, um, not necessarily healing people, but um, helping to facilitate healing, might, through a doc as a doctor or as a counselor, for instance. Or and there are probably various roles. And I think it would be interesting to think about what these different categories might be. Um, like that, but we don't have to do that now. But but in general, what 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 do you think of that? Do you see any um, anything you might add to that or adjust? Yeah, I think I think it's a wonderful um, both naming the, the the general universal like dimensions of a vocation. Um, the the last question you'd prepped around resources. I have. Mm -hmm. Parker Palmer and uh, Rowan Williams on, on my table, and both mentioned this too, you know, part of being what it means to be created by God and God as, um, it can be really easy to think about vocation and calling as this like top-down voice that God has for each of our lives. Like mm -hmm. I should be doing X or Y or marry X or Y um, that I think more often is perhaps our own voices or desires or wishes than, than the voice of God, um, which is why all of these things are important to work out in community. All that to say. Um, I think for the framework, I might propose a slightly different arrangement. I'd love to get your thoughts on it too. So I, I might say that there is a, a sort of vocation, a universal vocation true to all, all people and all, all humans and, and maybe all of creation um, of, of, of being. So, you know, God, God is the, the source and creator of everything that is that being true to um, being true to one's nature is a way of sort of living into one's vocation um, as creatures loved by God, hopefully love God and love one another and the rest of the created order. They might may have a second category or a vocation of the vocation, uh, the vocation of all the baptized, so of of Christians, and so um, this might include vocation. So I'm thinking of um, in probably not all in most like marriage liturgies or baptism liturgies. There's always some congregational component. So it's not, you know, when I, when Angela and I got married, there's some question after we exchanged our vows. And even then, you know, it's, it's important to, to name our response was I will not I do. Right. So it's, we're making a promise 
for something we don't yet quite know what we're promising. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is a vow, a promise, but it's always in the context of a community. So the congregation has some, you know, do you vow to uphold these two in their marriage and in their covenants? And everyone says, I will. And so being that, um, that communal body that both holds people to account, but also that um, comes to support when you need support or that vows to, um, you know, in the case of baptism, vows to help bring up this child or baby or adult, like in the faith, that those are important um, dimensions of, of, of the vocation of Christians. That just doesn't, doesn't like, it would be unintelligible for those sort of who are, who are not baptized or outside the church. It just wouldn't quite make sense um, or be silly or something like that. And then, um, I'm not going to commit to which category this next thing falls into. I do think there is a sense too of um, people living into the vocations, as you had said, in specific ways. So like identifying, you think, you know, uh, some classical Christian ways we talk about this is like your, your gifts and talents, like what, you know, uh, what are you good at? What do you enjoy doing? What do you find life-giving? I think often our, our bodies, tell us things about how we feel and how we are before our mind puts language to them. And so if you are, uh, we'll just keep using the example of teacher. If you're a teacher and you're showing up to your classroom and you feel like a, a sort of sick weight in your gut, you might not, that might not be like the right vocation for you, the right, right vocational trajectory for you. Um, but that may be something that you feel in your body before it sort of becomes language in, in your mind. And so being true to that, I, I do think, yeah, and this were like personality inventories and strengths profiles. Yeah. They're always going to be incomplete, but there is some sense of um, sometimes we need assessments, we need community, we need external sources um, to help tell us like who we are and the ways that we're gifted or, or not gifted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think teaching the other guys category or vocation I'd want to add would be like specific, um, some sort of like specific vocations. So not necessarily, um, in this were like vocation of being a parent or a spouse, or, um, if you're in a tradition where there are monks and nuns, like, you know, joining a religious order or ordained ministry. That these are specific vocations, um, sort of Christian vocations, often sacraments, but not always, that are not the call of all people or all Christians, but also you know have a sort of specific category. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that you're the case, you know, maybe the case that you're called to ordination and to marriage and parenting, or it might be the case that you're called to one of those or not the other. Um, it's, you know, the ways that that gets worked out on the ground are also just infinitely more complicated than, than what, I'm, what I'm sharing now. Um, I think for each of these, one of the challenges around this, like, this question of discernment is that um, for, for many of us, we need, right, we need the imagination to, to see ourselves in, in a certain light. Um, for you know, Angela would be an example of this 
to my wife, but lots of it's like women who come to divinity school who grew up in more conservative denominations that don't ordain women, for them to imagine themselves as pastors of a church or entering like the physical space of a pulpit requires some sort of like imagination that, that this is a possible, okay. possible option for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in some ways over the life of an individual life of a community, helping one another, um, again, helping one another discern the ways that our lives may bear fruit and our lives may, um, be used by God to the service of, of the world. Like all, you know, something we do individually, but also always like together. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, well, thank you for, for sharing about the, your thoughts on the model. Um, I'll briefly say if, um, that that helps to kind of, um, I think you've identified more specific subcategories that can fit in the wider categories. For instance, um, baptism versus this the more universal human calling. And I think what, what needs to be done now for forecast is we need to kind of draw a map of how these different um, yeah, yeah. categories fit under together, but it helps that you've identified more specific um, categories. something we haven't discussed much yet on forecast, but which is a really important element of calling. And I think um, is something that you, um, I think, uh, can speak to because of your role and being ordained yourself is the calling to ordained ministry. And this is often the focus, uh, I think, for many Christians when we talk about being called in the church. Sometimes I've heard people describe it similar to how God calls the prophets, a a clear voice speaking to them from within that this is what they ought to do with their lives. Um, At the same time, not everyone sees it this way. Um, Francis Dewar, an ordained Anglican, has written a book called Live for a Change, and it's on vocation. And he, he believes that the calling to ordain ministry is more something that comes from the church that uh, affirms um, someone um, being um, gifted or being appropriate for this role. Um, so, I, so I wanted to ask, what is your take on ordained ministry, and and what does it mean to be called to that? Yeah, um, I hadn't. I was unfamiliar with Francis Dewar's book until you you mentioned it. Um, I should I should read it. I should read it more. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's say ordained ministry as a particular kind of call and a particular kind of, of way, way of living out um, one's vocation that is, I say, you know, the call and I not having read um, Duar's book, this may, this may be more caricature than how it actually is. You know, I say our vocations are rooted in God. And so the source of the source of those vocations um, and, and the vocation of man, the vocation of ordained ministry is in God. How people come to to recognize that or sense that in their life can be through different uh, different forms of discovery. So for some, um, for some that may be 
a voice or a vision for some that may be sort of something reflected back toward them from their community. Regardless of how that sort of initial possibility emerges in their minds, um, and different traditions may have different views on this, my take is that, you know, those who are discerning a call toward ordained ministry, um, it should always be done in these communal discernment settings. And so some of that can be informally through like family and friends. You know, do you do you see this as a possibility for me? Um, like what are my gifts and graces? Um, do I have, do, you know, is this something that, that I feel drawn to do de- most deeply for who I am? But it should also be, um, you know, through like ministry boards and people who are part of these churches, um, people know know the candidate well. Who can discern with them whether this is this is a, a calling fitting to them? Um, you know, each each tradition, each longer tradition has its own set of criteria or the ways it talks about, say, like the the call toward ordination, um, like the order of elder versus the order of deacon is one common way that uh, uh, common way that you know. Um, so elder is usually those who are called toward the sort of care of the sacraments. So if you think of like a, a parish priest who uh, you're leading worship and liturgy every Sunday, but then some people may be called to, to the order of deacon. So thinking of um, you know, someone who has a, a foot in both uh, the church and the world, but more representing the church to the world than uh, thinking of um, the church like circled around around the Eucharist or something like that. It is also the case though that um, being called toward ordination doesn't necessarily equate or equate evenly to being uh, a priest or a pastor of a church. We've got more students at the Divinity School who perhaps feel a call toward ordination, but that was a, a call that was initially sensed or determined yeah, you know, not determined, but um, that was a call that was sort of heard and discerned in the context of like activism or like some march when they're discerning, like or when they're watching clergy march for. Um, I think especially in in the South after Charlottesville and um, when the the Confederate monument around there and ISIS was what twenty seventeen. Um, you know, a lot of activism around Black lives in around the United States and the South in the in the past several years. Yes. So it's, it may be for many people, it's in the context of a march that they discern, like, oh, maybe mm-hmm. ordained ministry is is the place for me. Really, but but they still don't necessarily imagine themselves mm-hmm. in a local church context. And so again, this is sort of trying to um, expand our imaginations for not just simply equating. What does it mean to be ordained to being a local church pastor? Though for most people, those things are going to be related, um, but helping students think through maybe call to ordination, or maybe they feel called, but it's not in the current tradition that they're a part of. Um, hmm. Again, thinking about, uh, you know, so women who grew up Southern Baptist, or that's just the largest um, that's in my head, but a tradition that historically does not ordain women 
it may be called to ordination, but to, to do that, they're going to have to, to leave and go somewhere else. And so a no from a ministry board, it may be a no that they're not called to ordain ministry. It may also be that, that this is not the right context for them and they need to go somewhere else. Um, so on the ground, it could be like the discernment process can be really challenging and like muddy, murky. Um, and so that's where like the slow, faithful discernment like with others is I think just critical. Thank you. Yeah, that, thank you. And um, in, in related to that, um, at Foreshadow, we've been exploring the vocation of writing and, um, and more broadly, the vocation to create with the arts. And, um, and Eugene Peterson, the, the pastor and the writer, once said that he thought writers ought to be ordained by the church. Um, and, and one of our editors recently wrote a piece uh, that was published yesterday on about how in her denomination, um, calling was limited to just preaching and um, missionary work, but she sensed a calling to write. Um, mm -hmm. And that was based on her desire to write and the deep gladness that came from writing. And so you, you are a writer as well. I know you've published some articles and you were mentioning earlier that, that that's one of the things you love doing. Um, are there any, so are there any um, students you work with who express some kind of calling to write or what can you say about um, writing or more broadly arts as a vocation? Yeah. Um... I am going to check out the article you're referencing. Yeah, the art, um, art and writing were not things I realized I cared about until like they've slowly unfolded for me. So my my dad's an author, and so in some ways writing was always um, like in, in my imagination of possibility. I remember someone asking me when I was like 10 or 11 or something like if there's one thing you could do for the rest of your life what would it be and for whatever reason answered writing which mm -hmm. i'm still i'm still i'm grappling with that <laughs> like this is felt weird um but i think with with both art and writing and poetry like there's some there's a particular thing calling or wave living out that through these forms like we imagine new worlds and possibilities and um say like tap into the creativity of god but these are um these are ways that in some ways they can have a prophetic a prophetic witness of teaching us making visible things about ourselves or about our world that we it's hard to see otherwise mm -hmm. um so they help us kind of break into like a different register a different frame whether it be yeah poetry or fiction nonfiction. Mm -hmm visual arts, different kinds. Um, so, you know, the, one of the challenges, I think a lot of writers and artists is, is a challenge that a lot of people have around vocation of, if you feel drawn to something or called to something, called to create, it's this deep in you. How do you do that while also like paying the bills? You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> um, these are not necessarily particularly lucrative um, professions and so, I do think it's um, of, of deep, deep importance for the church and for um, a definitely a lot of Divine students, I think, find themselves as by the time they're done with school, they're probably really good at reading and writing. Mm, and so yes. writing being a common, a common way that they can use their training and live out their call.
I have so many more questions for you, and I I won't be able to ask them all. I'm very sad um, not to be able to.、Um, but what you said about the imagination、um, resonates with something I must I've also been、um, uh, reflecting on in my own、um, discernment. And and there's a verse that's、uh, from the book of Romans that's been in my mind with regard to this, and it's、um, do not be uh, uh, do not be conformed. By the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and then you will be able to discern what is God's good and perfect will. Something along those lines, and、um, and it's related to what you're saying there because、um, I think so often Paul says that we need, we we need to be our minds need to be renewed in order to know、uh, to discern what God's will is, and. So, so that re- relates with what you're saying about、um, the imagination and、um, how, if one is thinking about imagining what they will do,、um, that 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 involves a,、uh, some kind of working of the mind to be able to, and perhaps a renewal and or even a change of one's mindset because perhaps there are no、um, current in, in the in the present world there are no current forms that that that、um, that makes it. Possible to、um, to see what that would look like. So you need to have some kind of imagination to to, to walk step forward. And、um, but more generally,、um, what I'm thinking about is how、um, our minds need to be renewed. And for me, what that what that、uh, has been looking like is、um, like filling my mind with with、uh, things that are of God.、Um, so practically, that means.、Um, The the kind of worship that I go to on on a Sunday, for example, how when I when I worship, when I、um, hear the songs and the prayers, that kind of renews my mind, and it it kind of puts me in a mindset where I think I'm more open to the Spirit of God、um, moving through me, and, and that can enable me to maybe discern what at least what maybe my next steps will be. Whereas if I'm filling my mind with things that are um, um, maybe harmful to me or Um, things that are、uh, opposing of the ways of God in this world,、um, that's probably going to influence me in another direction. Not, it's going to mi- kind of take me off course from from、um, from knowing what what is the right and and the just thing to do in in a certain situation. As as an example, so that so in the in the last minutes that we have,、um, I guess I'd like to hear.、Um, How, what nourishes you spiritually?、Um, how do you renew your mind in in Christ?、Mm-hmm. Um, what and 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 also, what does it mean for you to follow Jesus? Because that's that's the core Christian calling that we have is to follow follow Him. So, what does that mean for you?、So、all of the, I guess that's a lot of questions in one. But yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, so the renewing of your mind piece、um, to start start there. I yeah loved like,、um, reading, writing, but also always I've always I've loved learning、uh, since, and that's where I feel I think particularly at home in an educational context because there are always there are always new ideas and new possibilities and something else to learn. Um, and so that that has been a gift.、Um, I think another way, and this maybe more connects with、um, 
so so I'll I'll step back for a moment and eventually I'll I'll get to where okay. I'm headed. Yeah. But when I so for our hybrid master divinity students, the way that we're structuring, uh, we're sort of integrating like the field education, peer reflection, vocational discernment, like during that we're packaging that, integrating that with the spiritual formation requirement of the of the program. Mm -hmm. And so students each term identify like one spiritual practice or ministerial art that they want to focus on and do a deep dive on for that term. And then they'll select something else for each each subsequent term. The idea being that um, spiritual our spiritual formation or spiritual lives our intellectual lives being human like are all you know this is the the one life I say with the one life we have until the eschaton, YOLO until the eschaton. <laughs> um, but our, our life and our, um, our, our lives are a gift and um, discerning maybe what stories we've inherited or been told along the way that we need to um, retire or let die. Like what, what are ways that we inhabit and practice our Christian faith that give us life and we can continue to, to bring with us. So all of this is tied together. Um, so I think about your, your question around um, renewing of your mind and spiritual practices. I keep going back to, um, for me, a lot of it happens in the context of like inhabiting, like visiting, inhabiting different places and spaces. It's like sitting in, sitting in, um, like we visited New York a couple of weeks ago and we, we visited a lot of churches and just like sat, sat in the churches and looked at the community and looked at the architecture. But it's also the case of like part of field education last this past academic year, I visited a lot of like small rural methods churches in um, about an hour, 45 minutes away from, away from Durham and engaging with, um, engaging with the, the pastors and staff and sort of ordinary people whose lives like in, involve these places and these churches and these communities, I always find, uh, I always find those really life-giving. We, we call them contextual immersions. Mm -hmm. And those are always my favorite, like my favorite weeks. Um, and so I love, yeah, just love, um, sort of seeing different places and, and meeting different people in those contexts and kind of hearing, hearing the stories of their communities. Um, mm -hmm. I find that really life-giving. Mm -hmm. I mean, not unrelated to this, I'd say for me, it's also, it's like corporate worship, um, mm -hmm. whether it's like a chapel service during the week or, or just, um, the parish I go to on Sunday mornings or morning, we had morning prayer this morning. So being, being in these like corporate worship settings, I find really, um, meaningful and significant. I always went to church growing up. Both my parents were pastors, I think I said. Um, mm -hmm. But a lot of the faith was pretty individualistic and pretty, um, you know, your individual sin, so you should do this and not do this. And there was, there wasn't as much of an emphasis or accent on the ways that uh, our spirituality is often corporate and um, mm -hmm. So I, f I find these sort of group, and I mean, some ways, whether it's a service or liturgy or something else, but being being in, in the larger body of Christ, um, worshiping 
particularly meaningful. Thank you. Um, well, are there, I'm sure there are many, I know there are many things we didn't say, um, but are there any projects or programs you'd like our listeners to know about? Um, just any, any other resources besides the, the books that you mentioned um, on vocation that you can recommend, or is there any, like, any final thought that you haven't said that you really feel like you really want to say, any of those that you would like to share now? Yeah, so um, I just finished Parker Palmer's Let Your Life Speak. I recommend it. There you go. You know, it's five, <laughs> listeners can imagine me holding up a book. And then um, Rowan Williams has two chapters in Array of Darkness on vocation. Okay. Which are also, uh, I highly recommend. Um, I, I say in terms of projects, um, so one project I have this summer is imagining what was, well, is imagining, <laughs> is working to put some like structures or containers together around chaplaincy. Mm. So we've have divinity students for a long time have found their vocational identities in chaplaincy settings. So the, the spiritual care of people and communities, but based in institutions like a prison or a hospital or in palliative care or higher education. Um, so we've had students who have been doing this for years, but there are very few, uh, we haven't created necessarily like a pathway toward chaplaincy mm -hmm. at the Divinity School. Mm -hmm. Some of that being, um, there can be, try, I'm trying to find a way to put this uh, like generously and diplomatically. So there can often be two, two different like poles or sides for how these things are thought of. So on the one hand, you have uh, like chaplains or chaplaincy that tries to um, tries to boil theological commitments down to like a least common denominator. So okay, like if if we're so I when I worked in housing, we created a an interfaith prayer space. So there are some models that where an interfaith prayer space is basically just an empty room. And so it's like, well, people have, they do whatever they want in it. We opted for a different model for a prayer space that for the, for the religious traditions represented at the school, if you go to this space, you'll have everything you need. And so we'll have like a mezuzah that you can put up or a crucifix. You want to pray with that or, um, you know, prayer rugs with a, directional area, arrow pointing toward Becca. So you have what you need. So for, so one chaplaincy model is this sort of like empty room idea that we are empty vessels and we receive whatever we want to. We try not to put any, um, try to have no theological commitments. The uh, internal inconsistency in, in that is that like we always have theological commitments. Like there's always some, some position that we, we come from and so what does it look like? Um, this is when working on the summer. What does it look like, um, on the other hand, to have these robust Christian commitments, these this, like strong vision of what it means to be baptized, to participate in the weekly life of the church and sacraments? What does it look like to come to this as a Christian, but also to have this commitment, this spiritual care of everyone um, in a way that's not like, 
imperialistic or not just trying to like force your way upon others, mm -hmm. but deep care for the humanity of, of those in your care. This is also the case that in the United States, you know, we have fewer and fewer full-time pastoral positions, just like more people are bivocational, um, more, we're gonna have to we have to rethink the, the old way of doing church, the older traditions of doing church, which are wonderful, are just not gonna be the case for as many clergy. And so if you're discerning a call toward ordained ministry, um, Chaplaincy is also a way for many, um, I've heard from many women of color, black women, especially who come from, who are in these more conservative dominations. This is often a place where you can, um, your sort of ministry and ordination can find a, can find a home. And so what does it look like to, to imagine chaplaincy through a more robust Christian lens, but to provide avenues where students can imagine themselves in these different institutions that are not explicitly Christian, um, but supporting and caring for others. So that's what I'm working on this summer, okay. which I'm excited about. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like you're really on the, um, like the cutting edge in terms of um, what ministry looks like in this changing culture that we're in and, um, and alongside others. Um, so, so yeah, well, thank you for taking the time to, to speak with, with me. Um, this is, I, I guess this, I, I, I wish I could have asked you the other questions, but I think the, the, the conversation that we had really gives a, um, I don't know, a sliver or a, a, into a wider world. And so what we have been talking about, I think has been really helpful. So, so thank you very much, Jeff. And, um, it's been great to, to speak with you. So, so to our listeners, um, we hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please be sure to share it with someone you think would appreciate it. And um, we'd love to hear from you. So do get in touch by emailing us at foreshadowmagazine at gmail.com or reaching out on various social media platforms. And, um, and if anyone has a question for you, Jeff, um, do you have an email address or can they email me? And uh, Yeah, either if, if they want to email you or um, if you search for me on the Duke Divinity School website, my email address should pop up. Okay. It's jnelson at div.duke.edu. But okay. Yeah, I'd be happy to to receive anything. Great. Thanks. And you can also visit foreshadowmagazine.com to read new writings and listen to other work posted every week. So I'd like to thank our guest again, Jeff, and thank you all for listening. That's the forecast for today. <laughs>